everybody. Welcome to episode 161 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and this episode marks the beginning of this show becoming dedicated completely to the live-action Superboy series produced by Alia Salkind. And this week I'm covering episodes 11 and 12 of season 1, The Invisible People and Kryptonite Kills. As I noted last week when I was on with Patrick Delmore, that episode completed the run of the Ruby Spear Superman, so... There is nothing left between the end of the Ruby Spears and the end of Superboy. So like I said last week, all Superboy all the time. And I have a mixed bag of episodes this week. The Invisible People episode wasn't particularly strong, but the Kryptonite Kills one was a little bit better. Season 1 is definitely not the uh, high watermark for the Superboy television series. That will be found later in in Seasons 3 and 4. But before I get into this week's coverage, I have... I have a few items of feedback to address, the first of which is email from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on episode 150. Greetings, Mike. Wow, 150 episodes is quite the milestone. Congratulations. By the skin of the dragon's teeth is fun. First of all, because I always enjoy seeing Lex Luthor, although I, I, although I prefer Lex as an evil scientist rather than an evil businessman. I agree with you that it seems unlikely that the Chinese government would sell the Great Wall, but I guess I'll accept that for the sake of the story. It does seem reasonable that they'd keep a close eye on what Lex might be digging up, though. I can hardly express how glad I was that there was no appearance of Superman to rebuild the Great Wall vision. As for your point that you don't like saying that Superman is vulnerable to magic, perhaps another way to put it is that magic can overcome his powers since, in many comic stories, he has been hurt by magic, or his powers have been removed or rendered ineffective by magic. In any case, when magic is involved, Superman usually will need to use his wits rather than sheer muscle to win the day. And, and that generally makes for a better story. I liked how you noted the similarities in Cybron Strikes to the Borg in Star Trek The Next Generation. It is an interesting coincidence, but then, there are only so many story ideas out there, and I assume it's nothing more than coincidence. Here again, we see Superman using his brains to defeat Cybron and preserve his secret identity, which I enjoy. I was also glad that you pointed out that things like super hearing and vision powers do not have in-universe manifestations that are perceptible to others. I often find myself explaining to some people that no, Superman's heat vision is not a visible red beam forming a line from his eyes to the target, since he often uses that power in the guise of Clark Kent. Also, even an ordinary laser beam is normally only visible as a red dot at the target, not as a visible beam through the air, unless he's traveling through a diffracting medium like fog. This is one of the effects in many sci-fi movies and TV shows that drive me crazy, having the Enterprise's phasers, for example, emit a visible linear beam through airless space. I reconcile it in my mind as simply a dramatic visual cue for the audience, which is unseen in-universe. As with the earlier episode, I, ins- I especially enjoyed the Kent Family album stories this time. In both At the Babysitters and The First Day of School, we see Clark as a willful, perhaps a little mischievous youngster, but not really bad, who has his troubles mainly though not through not fully understanding how different he is. At that age, I think kids assume they are typical rather than unique, and probably not having a complete sense of and probably not having a complete sense yet of what is right and what is wrong, as determined by the grown-ups in this world. I imagine we'll see Clark becoming more of the big boy scout as he matures in future stories, and I look forward to that. It's fun to see his character developing over time. Thanks as always, and I can hardly wait to hear your coverage of the live-action Superboy. Live long and prosper, Dave. Well, as always, thank you, Dave, for writing in. Uh, Dave starts off his letter by congratulating me on reaching 150 episodes as my milestone. And I'm going to be quite honest, I don't think in terms of milestones, some people do more than others, especially since I'm a solo show, I really don't feel the need to commemorate milestones like that. I mean, I am appreciative of everybody who listens to the show, don't get me wrong. And if I didn't have you know, somewhat decent numbers, it, it might, and I'm not saying I really pay attention to the numbers that all that much because I don't, at least not anymore, but it just seems for me to be a little self-serving to celebrate a milestone like that because it's just me yakking into the microphone for the most part. I mean, I'm not the type of person to celebrate myself, really, but I do thank Dave for his congratulations. Reaching 150 milestones is actually more of a testament to endurance, maybe, that I've been able to stick with it for this long. I mean, it in some ways, it seems like I started the show yesterday. And other times it feels like I started the show ages ago, e- even though it's only been four years. I still remember in early uh, February at work, uh, <laughs> sitting in my car in the rain recording episode one. 
and now here I am with I've got my whole setup down here in the basement, and it probably sounds a lot better than episode one did. I'm sure my editing has gotten better as well, but you know, I really didn't think of the 150 episode milestone when I recorded that episode. But thank you, Dave, for noting it, and and thank all of you for who have stuck with me either from day one or who've come on later. You know, I'm glad to have all of you. And I'd like to hear from all of you, too. Well, not, maybe not all of you. There's not enough room on the episode for that. But, but you know, I'd like to hear from as many of you as possible. You know, leave an iTunes review. Leave an Apple Podcast review. Send me an email. You know, let me know if you're enjoying, enjoying the show. And I guess that's really all I've got for that tangent as I roll on here. I don't have a lot to add to Dave's comments about the By the Skin of the Dragon's Teeth. Yes, we are glad that the uh, Rebuild the Great Wall vision did not show up. It only showed up in Superman 4 because it was a budgetary solution. I've already said everything I need to say about magic in episode 150. And I do agree that the similarities to Star Trek The Next Generation is just a coincidence. And as far as Superman's heat vision being imperceptible to people, I think that depends on who's telling the story. Because one thing I remember vividly about Superman 2 when he's in his guise as Clark Kent trying to save Lois from uh, after she threw herself into the river. He clearly looked both ways before he used his heat vision. So I think there he was worried about somebody seeing something. And in Superman 3, Gus Gorman does allude to laser beams coming out of his eyes. So I guess that kind of thing depends on the creator. And uh, Dave said in the Kent Family album story that he's looking forward to seeing uh, Clark become a little bit more uh, of the big blue boy scout. Keep watching, Dave. Keep watching. I wonder if you'll have the same reactions to uh, older Clark that I did. Just wondering. But from there, I'm going to move on to my next email. This one is from Jack Bone. His subject is Skin of the Dragon Teeth. And Jack writes, This is when I was out on my own, making money, buying comics, and buying magazines about comics. I found the one with the, an interview with Marv Wolfman about his work on Superman. One interesting thing, Cybron was supposed to be his robotic Brainiac, but Brainiac was being reworked in the comics, so this one got reworked into its own character. The Dragon episode is the first one so far that I remember, and mostly the family album and playful Super Tyke. This is also when I was able to buy tape of the Fleischer Supermans. So, although I was only able to chase down the station showing Superboy for a week or two. Good times. Alright, I thank you Jack for writing in. I did not know that Cybron was uh, Marv Wolfman's version of Brainiac. And he reworked the character well enough that I didn't even... I'm not 100% sure I even thought of Brainiac during the Cybron episode. I might have. At least not without going back to uh, episode 150. But, you know, like Dave, thank you uh, Jack for writing in. I have a Facebook comment. This one is in regards to the previous episode, 149, my first episode back from from hiatus. This is from uh, Gord Tolton, Ranger Gord on Facebook. And uh, Gord writes, I got a copy of the Ruby Spears in a supermarket bargain bin, and your post inspired me to finally crack it open. The Attitude is an interesting meld of the Reeve movies, the George Reeves show, and what was happening in post-crisis comics. Not surprising since Marv Wolfman is there. The plotting and dialogue are above par, and the animation is about where you'd find the Sunbow G.I. Joe, which isn't a bad bar to achieve. If you haven't caught up to it since recording, Alan Oppenheimer has a ton of Greek credibility. What mostly pops up to me is his being one of the three actors playing Steve Austin's doctor, Rudy Wells. Hey, could this be part of the Council of Wells? The scientist who made the $6 million man better, stronger, and faster. And if I'm not mistaken, I think Stanley Ralph Ross was a writer on the 1966 Batman show as well. Well, thank you, Gord, for writing in. I think last week it was uh, Patrick Delmore who mentioned uh, the G.I. Joe animation in relation to uh, the uh, Ruby Spears Superman show, that it was about uh, that quality, which you're right, not a bad bar to achieve at all. So, as always, thank you uh, to Dave, Jack, and Gord for writing in. If you guys want to write in too, manascreen at gmail.com, or you can leave comments on the Facebook posts, either in the Manascreen podcast Facebook group or on the Two True Freaks Facebook group. Eventually, maybe even by now, you can leave comments on the Two True Freaks website. We are in the process of redoing the website, and as of this recording on April 16th, it has not been updated as of yet. So, with all that behind me, we'll take a quick break, play a podcast promo, and then I'll come back with the Superboy episode, The Invisible People. Hang around, folks. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Red alert! All crew members report to battle stations. Red alert! Shields up. What shields? You're Starfleet officers. Now start acting like it. Oh, it's just Garrett. Plain, simple, Garrett. Dax, we might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. The wormhole does bring them our way, doesn't it? 
Everyone wants a piece of the new frontier. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. With Starfleet, one of our most important posts. Quite a motley crew you've assembled here, Benji. Listen to The Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. And here are your hosts, Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro. Bloody hell. Oh, I love a woman in uniform. Only on TwoTrueFreaks.com. All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to start things off with The Invisible People. Original broadcast date was January 21st, 1989. This episode was directed by Superman film alum Jackie Cooper, who in in all four Christopher Reeve movies played the role of Perry White. And Jackie Cooper is directing both episodes that I'll be that I will be discussing this week. This particular episode was written by Mark Evanier. Guest cast included Rich Higley as the cop, Jack Malone as Baker, Greg Morris as Damon. Bill Orsini as Gruber, Bob Painter as Alex, Cynthia Ann Roses as Alice, and Sonny Schroyer as Gerald Manfred. And our synopsis is brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. So we this episode starts on the beach with Lana, TJ, and Clark walking through and examining a beach camp right in, that is uh, set up right in front of a beach club. There are homeless people living there on the beach, and they're very close to the beach club, which is for sale. It's a pleasure doing business with you, Alex. And I think $15 million is a fair price for this property, don't you? Well, speaking of fair price, uh, is your atrium property on the market? I'm sorry, that building's not for sale. It's the first one I put up. I have a sentimental attachment to it. Well, how about the um, warehouse on uh, Main Street? Sorry, Alex. What you're saying is that uh, this is the only property you're selling? When can I expect the deal, Memo? My attorney's drawing up the papers right now. But remember, there's no deal until you take care of the contingency. As he directs our attention toward the beach camp. Suddenly, a buggy with two thugs in it speeds by. One of the hooligans throws a Molotov cocktail into one of the tents and a fire breaks out. The camp leader barks out orders, telling folks to gather water from the ocean to get the fire out. Hey! Hey, call the fire department! Somebody call the fire department! Call the fire department. Ask them to drop by if they're not too busy. Clark makes sure no one can see him, and then as the wind is blowing, he puts out the fire with his super breath. The camp leader consults Alice, who is crying over their destroyed food, saying that the sudden wind saved most of the tents and that everything will be all right. How could anybody do something so awful? Yeah, the man on the terrace is a big help. That, my friends, is Gerald Manfred, Mr. Conglomerate. He's the reason that we're here homeless! Why don't you take your people someplace else? There he is, my people. He was not born to shame. Upon his brow, shame is a shame to sit. Mr. Manfred, they lost their food in the fire. You've got so much, I was thinking maybe you could give some to them. What are you doing here? You don't look like you belong with them. My name is Lana Lang. I'm researching the problems for the homeless for my political science class. Why don't you take them back to your political science class and feed them? Can I quote you on that, Mr. Manfred? Who the hell are you? Let's just say I'm with the press. TJ, get a shot of Mr. Manfred. If he takes another picture of me, break his camera. And as for food, young lady, I'd rather feed the seagulls. Manfred mockingly begins throwing his food to the seagulls and the camp people riot. They all rush to the club and begin grappling with the security. Clark tells camp leader Damon that he needs to do something because his people are getting out of control. Damon runs along with them, pleading with them to stop, that they're playing into his hands, and that they can't do this. But very quickly, the out-of-control crowd is subdued by security and police. Clark, who probably handed out the worst of it, throwing a security guy across the patio and through a table. Why arrest them? They're just hungry. Well, I think I finally removed the contingency. Later, Damon forms a hunting party in order to locate items they can make pegs out of in order to stake their tents. Lana goes with him at first so she can discuss the possible solutions to their dilemma, but when Damon suggests they spread their search to the road because they might have better luck, Lana groans. TJ jokes about how they hate exercise and Lana laughs, remaining alone as the two guys go off toward the road. As TJ and Damon search the road, a black van approaches and the two men dressed as police officers assault them. 
As they struggle, TJ is knocked unconscious and thrown into the van while Damon is hauled off. TJ's arm clips the drive shift as he's thrown in, and the van begins driving off out of control. Damon points and screams that they need to help him help him, but the men simply drag Damon away and ignore the van. Lana, seemingly thinking her friends have been gone too long, wanders up to the road around the same time this is happening. She appears to watch it happen, then picks up TJ's camera and looks at it. All the while, Damon is still screaming in the van that's driving further and further up the road, with no one in control. Finally, Lana calls out TJ, and Clark down on the beach hears her and flies in a Superboy. Superboy stops the van as it approaches the ocean and takes TJ back to the beach. It's uh, good to see you all. You wouldn't have seen anybody if it wasn't for Superboy. Suppose I, I have some thank you cards made up, so next time I'm in this condition, I can just hand you one. It's a deal, TJ. Damon, they've got Damon. I, I know. Take it easy. I was wondering if you could give me a clue as to. We need a doctor. Oh, a first aid station. There's a doctor there. Without Damon, we're lost. Can't we help? I wish you could. I don't see how. We've been over every inch of this city, looking for jobs and begging food. We know it like nobody else. Of course. The balloons. I'll be looking, too. I'll be in the air. If you see anything, release a balloon. Wait! They haven't got any money. Clark should have some. Why is he always disappearing? Don't worry about him. He'll be fine. Feel better? Yeah. Oh, I've been robbed. I took it to help Damon. Well, that's cool, as long as I know it's for a good cause. TJ, they're all looking for Damon, even Superboy. He was hoping you could help. I can. Um, those guys who jumped us, they try to act like cops, but I mean, they missed by a mile. They had shoulder patches. Iron Gate Protective Services. So Lana heads off and finds the place. Inside, Manfred and the tied-up Damon have a chat. Damon, you and I have a lot in common. That's a disgusting thought. I sure couldn't do it, Mr. Manfred. I'd be awake all night, unable to sleep. Remembering all those hungry faces staring at me. But after all, business is business. Look at you, a beach bum. What do you know about business? I have my MBA from the University of California. I've been vice president of three different corporations. Do you want me to go on? I caught her snooping. Damon! That's political science. Put her in the back office. But on the way, Lana manages to trip her captor and make a break for it. Don't let her get away! Lana runs outside and is recaptured, but not before the woman who earlier cried over to destroy food sees her. thousand dollars tax-free and it's yours just move your people away from my area no deal you know why i dropped out too many of your kind all the lying and cheating and ruthlessness but when it's called business it's perfectly acceptable <laughs> i tried damon i tried but you give me no choice and now the little lady has to go with you Okay, I restart the deal. You let Lana go, we'll do business. The woman releases a balloon into the sky, and Superboy heads in for the rescue. I'm rethinking it too, Dan. Once a girl is away free, 
your self-righteous morality will insist that you keep your people where they are. Without you, they'll drift away and it won't cost me one cent. Then, just as the two fake cops from earlier are about to shoot Lana and Damon, Superboy crashes through the roof and shields them. Heat Vision disarms the thugs and Superboy frees the prisoner. Let's talk deal. Anything. Anything. The factory. Open it. He broke the law. I have to turn him over to the police. Suppose I don't press charges. Please, I'll do anything you want. You'll give jobs to the people you promised? Agreed. Why would anybody trust him to keep his word? Well, if he doesn't, we'll simply have to tell the authorities about his attempted murder of you and Damon. And of course, you two will be more than happy to testify against Mr. Manfred in order to plea bargain for a lesser offense. And then you won't have to worry about who your neighbors are. The state will provide you with a place to live. It's called prison. And if that thought doesn't keep you honest, I'll be back to ask you why. In the end, Damon heads off, saying, While you're waiting for your jobs, our good and faithful friend, Mr. Gerald Manfred, will provide you with housing. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, now. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care of yourself, Bye-bye. Goodbye, Alice. What about you? Is there a job for you? That's not my style. I've got some other things to do. Goodbye, sweetheart. Oh, for me? Thank you. Remember me. I want to thank you. Don't thank me, thank TJ and Lana. I, I didn't do anything. That's not true, Clark. You took the first step of the solution to the problem of the homeless. What's that? You notice that we exist? Take care. Probably pretty lady. Take care of yourself. Thank you. Yeah. So this episode is the show's attempt to tackle the homeless issue, and they try to do that through Lana's activism. I mean, it doesn't really take a good look at the homeless problem because, you know, it wraps up the problem in 22 minutes or 23 or however long this episode is. So you can't really tackle the problem in that short a time. It's more than just Superboy can handle, and it's not solving the entire homeless problem. It is maybe solving the problem of this one location. I mean, I seriously doubt we're going to see these people again. So there's probably no real way to know whether Manfred keeps up his end of the bargain. Although I guess if he doesn't want to go to jail, he probably will. But ugh. this is the kind of episode that really can't get out of its own way. There's a lot of bad acting. I mean, the guy who plays Manfred, he's just, he's almost unwatchable in the sense that he's so smarmy, so cartoony that it's like, you gotta wonder, was he told to be this way, or was that his decision? Either way, it doesn't really work for me. I mean, and you see the juxtaposition right away when the episode starts. You have the beach club, and then you have the little the tent set up kind of on the beach in front of the club. And at first I thought Lana was working at the paper now, but as she's kind of giving TJ orders for a contrasting shot of the beach club and the homeless people living just outside the gates, but apparently we're going to find out that she's doing this for her political science class at the college. So down in the in the beach club, we have these two guys working on a real estate deal, but the homeless people kind of hanging out on public property outside the club is a problem for the sale. I mean, you know, I kind of don't blame the person who's buying the club who would want to buy a place with that hanging around the outside. It is probably going to have a negative impact on business. I'm not sure what comes next, which is the firebombing of the tent city is going to help, but this is part of the uh, plot from Manfred to get rid of the homeless. And... Manfred's contempt for the homeless people is, you know, kind of kind of hangs naked in the air because while TJ is asking for help for something called the fire department, Manfred is almost gloating. You know, wanting them gone is one thing, gloating over their suffering is quite another. And it's just the way in which it's done. I'd almost rather him be indifferent instead of reveling in it. I guess that's the best way to put it. So Harris Clark, acting covertly as he blows out the fire with his super breath, 
clearly the uh, mist coming out of his mouth is not visible to the people in universe as no one notices it that kind of can kind of piggyback on the letter from dave mcelveny in the previous segment so the people are pissed that everything they have kind of just uh burned to the ground and while the beach club crowd just kind of watched and drank their tea it is the classic battle between the rich and the poor so now uh that the fire is out the uh we're going to have a very poorly choreographed riot as uh the poor people uh storm the gates of the beach club like they're storming the beaches at normandy and we've got a little bit of a food riot on their hands well basically while the rich people in the beach club are just kind of sitting there eating and almost rubbing it in the uh, homeless people's faces so we have uh, a food riot on our hands here we have damon trying to hold back the crowd uh, unsuccessfully there's always somebody trying to hold back the crowd saying no you're playing into their hands and you know there's always that guy and uh, there's always the crowd not listening so we're, just, we're going to have that and the state troopers showed up uh, pretty quick and uh to be totally honest the uh, homeless people were the instigators and deserve to be arrested i mean they granted the uh beach club o- owner manfred sanctioned the firebombing but you know nobody saw him do it and uh the poor the poor folks did storm private property so you know they arresting them was the cop's job whether you, you know you sympathize with their position or not so after all that we have our crew bringing uh food back to the homeless uh tj lana and perhaps clark as well did a shopping run apparently manfred has not gotten rid of the uh, contingency just yet so here we learned a little bit of the story manfred was going to open a factory and he has not he uh moved the factory to uh korea instead and kind of everyone wound up poor on the beach which is interesting i mean i don't generally know of people who are lured to a certain area for a factory job i mean i've moved for work several times in my life but i've only moved to places that were already there I mean, and I'm sure some people have done it, but I don't know a ton of people that have moved to a place because a factory was being built. I mean, there might be some staff that have moved with one just because we, because they're in a management position or something like that and just moved with with a complex. But for the most part, factories are kind of expected to serve the population that's already there instead of importing uh, one from outside. You know, I could be completely wrong in that. And if I am, you know, hopefully somebody will set me straight. So... Apparently, Damon here is the reason why these people are living on the beach. I mean, I guess these, these people just kind of got stuck in Florida. They couldn't go back to wherever it is they came from. So, so Damon is a bit of an activist. He's back quickly from his arrest as uh, they were cut loose because I guess they really couldn't charge him with anything. Uh, nobody at the beach club was willing to press charges. So Damon is going to explain his activism to uh, Lana and TJ. And uh, as soon as uh, T- TJ and uh, Damon kind of go up looking for the pegs for the tents, we see a very suspicious-looking van here, and these two uh, 80s-looking dudes run out and uh, rough them up a little bit. I mean, this show is awful at the fighting. I'm not buying any of this. TJ ends up stuck in a runaway van, and as these two rental cops just kind of drag Damon to the ground, it's like literally like they kind of fell on him. It's just poorly choreographed, very slow. I am not buying that anybody's being roughed up, even though I'm supposed to. So then Lana yells to TJ as if that was going to help, but unfortunately... Uh, Clark heard it and turned into Superboy. At which point, Superboy just kind of flies to Lana. He didn't see the runaway van. I thought he, I thought he did, but he, he did, however, lead to a pretty nice turn in front of the green screen. So a lot of the green screen shots in this show have been just kind of him coming straight, very little turning and banking. So TJ looks pretty roughed up in such a lousy fight, and he wakes up and everybody's looking at him, including Superboy, who had stopped the van and uh, rescued him. So now uh, with Damon gone, the uh, I hate calling them the poor people, but I really don't have any other name for them. It's not like they're a street gang, which uh, with uh, with names and uh, with a gang, good, cool gang name. The you know the poor people and the rich assholes. So the poor are going to scatter around for Superboy because apparently apparently they've lived on the streets so long that they know their way around town, and they're going to help Superboy look for Damon. And if somebody finds where they're going, they're going to release a balloon in the sky so Superboy will know to come to them. Lana showing no remorse for TJ, just kind of reaches into his vest, pulls out his wallet to buy all the balloons, which is actually the first thing uh, TJ notices when he wakes up. His wallet is missing. Not a, what day is it? What time is it? Oh, nope, my wallet's gone. What happened? Apparently, while TJ was getting his ass handed to him, he uh, managed to read their uniforms, and that leads Lana to Iron Gate Protective Services. And inside, we have Damon and uh, Manfred. And guess what, guys? Manfred's gonna monologue. Because when you're a cartoon-like villain... You have to monologue like a cartoon villain. And here we learned that apparently Damon has a business credit. He's been a VP for several uh, corporations. 
maybe even as the Fortune 500s, but he's retired now and is now an activist. Apparently, he burned out on uh, the corporate life. And these two henchmen, the Manfred, are just awful. Lana nearly gets away, but she's caught again, and uh, fortunately, one of the homeless folks is here to release a balloon, and the Superboy knows. Now, my question now becomes, how does Superboy know where the balloon comes from if he's so far high in the air? It's not like he can... A balloon just kind of floats with the wind. It's not like he can just uh, figure out its trajectory just by looking at it. So, uh, while this is all going on, we've learned a little bit more about Damon, who, like I said, left big business. And apparently, because he saw all the people that were hurt in the name of making money, which is uh, still a problem. Here we are on April 16th, and the economy has still not been open due to the uh, coronavirus. Hopefully, you know, we're in a little bit more of a recovery by the time this episode drops in June, but, you know, it may be, we may not be. I cannot communicate with the uh, mic of the future that's going to put this episode out. And meanwhile, Superboy just kind of flew right by the balloon. I kind of wonder how he missed it. And then, and I only wondered that because the show didn't show him acknowledge the balloon in any way. He just kind of flew past it, but he must have noticed it because he flew right. But that's where Alice and her child are waiting and waving to Superboy. So now Lana and Damon are about to be shot when Superboy shows up and heats up the guns. And rescues them both. And I guess at this point, business is concluded. Superboy burns the ropes and frees Damon. I kind of wonder why he doesn't just use his hands, but I guess it gives us a chance to show off the poor heat vision effects. So once Superboy shows up, Manfred basically pisses himself and agrees to build the factory that build the factory that he promised in exchange for not going to prison. And with the mission completed, Damon's moving on. So, despite everything that Lana and TJ did, Damon gives props to Clark for acknowledging the homeless exist. Probably gave him a little too much credit based on what he should know about Clark, but whatever, this is what it is. Lana and TJ were a much bigger part of this episode than Clark was. He should have been given them the accolades. They were at least involved. I mean, Clark was involved too with Superboy, but nobody knows that. So like I said, this episode tried to be topical, but the cheese factor was high, which really takes away from what the episode was trying to say. Like I said, I'd rather see Manfred just not care than be this scenery-chewing buffoon that he was portrayed to be. And it's not like they were invisible to anybody. They were noticed. The seller just wanted them gone. Maybe he wanted them to turn invisible. I don't know. But this is an episode that tried to tackle a serious topic. But its own limitations and bad acting just, just got in the way. And that's really all I've got to say about that. So now I'm going to take another break, play another promo, and then I'm going to come back with something a little more comic booky. I'll be back with Kryptonite Kills. Hang around, folks. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Working together, we saved the planet. And I believe that if we stayed together as a team, we would be a force that could truly work for the ideals of peace and justice. Every episode. My name is Jean. I'm a Martian. Every adventure. <sighs> okay. You guys are so slow. Every hero. Whatever you think you're doing, if you present a threat to the world... The Justice League will take you down. Cindy and Chris Franklin bring you JLU Cast. Whatever the future holds, we'll make those choices ourselves. Don't say you don't love me. I'll never say that. Covering the complete animated run of Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. And the adventure continues. There's strength in numbers. What? Like a bunch of super friends? More like a Justice League. All right, welcome back, folks. Going to finish things off with Kryptonite Kills. Original broadcast date was January 28, 1989. Directed by Jackie Cooper. Writing credits were Mike Carlin and Andy Helfer. Our guest cast is Pamela Bach as Veronica, as, or Ronnie as they referred to her in uh, this particular episode. George Kiris was Professor Peterson. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with him, for those of you who are familiar with West Side Story, he played uh, Bernardo in uh, in that film. Paul Cohn as Oswald. Larry Francer as Felix. Michael Mano as Leo. Jason Tripp as the gemology student. Cindy Vecino as a- Agnes. Sandra Von Johnson as the secretary. Scott Wells as Lex Luthor. And Tanya Roberts as the college student. And our synopsis is brought to you by supermanhomepage.com. Your number one source for Superman information on the web. Two boys in a desert are horrified to see a streaking meteorite tumble from the sky above them. They approach after a meteor crashes and the glow from the crater illuminates them both in a green hue. We quickly switch to the gems and minerals at Schuster where 
Clark, Lana, and TJ discuss Lex Luthor, who is sitting with his goon Leo, and of course, the beauty of the week, whom TJ has a crush on, one Ronnie Lawler. Now I see why TJ transferred to gemology. <laughs> Earth to TJ. Come in, TJ. Hey, you're blocking my view. Whoa, I didn't know you had such interest in gems and minerals. Well, minerals, no, but uh, that Ronnie Lawler, that's a gem I wouldn't mind exploring every facet of. Forget it, Tej. She's gone, man. Yep. She's fallen head over heels for Lex Luthor. Heaven only knows why. I thought she was smarter than that. You know, Lex, we have done so much in the last few days. What the... The helicopter ride and the yacht trip, everything. I feel so lucky. Sometimes you should, my dear. It's not every girl who gets noticed by Lex mm -hmm. Luthor. Well, I'm very selective. Very selective. Professor Peterson enters the class. Sorry I'm late, class, but I just received a remarkable parcel from my associates in Addis Ababa, and I wanted to share their discovery with you all. I'm pleased to say that we have found an energy-radiating meteorite. It shattered upon impact with the Earth and is like nothing man has ever seen before. In fact, we believe it may be an actual fragment of another world, a world which in all probability was destroyed by an incredible explosion which propelled these stones through the cosmos right here to Earth. Clark, are you all right? I've never felt like this before. Clark! Are you okay, Clark? During the commotion, Luthor pockets a piece of the rock from the professor's box. As Luthor leaves the room, though, Clark begins to feel better. The, the professor wants the infirmary staff to hurry up since he called them already, but Clark tells them no doctors and Lotta admits that Clark's avoided doctors ever since they were kids. Lex walked along the campus with Leo, telling him, I knew it was just a matter of time before I got what I wanted, Leo. Do you know why? Because you're lucky, Lex? No, 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 no. Luck has nothing to do with it, Leo. People like me deserve everything we get. You need us, Mr. Luther? Yeah, I certainly do. Remember that machine you guys whipped up for me about a month ago? What was it you called it? An electro-polarity discharger. The one we couldn't find the power supply for? Oh, gee, Lex, plutonium isn't easy to come by, and there's no way it'll run without it. Just bring the machine here. I think I've got something better than plutonium. Leo, my man, a little music, please. Something dramatic, I think. Perhaps a little Greek. Pierrot Sweet One, Opus 46, if you don't mind. You got it, boss man. Excellent, boys. Settle up. Don't be ridiculous, boys. We finally got your invention working. And that's cause for celebration. Will there be girls there? When the lights go out all over town, 
There'll be so much confusion and panic. <laughs> You'll be able to walk right in and take anything your little nerdy heart desires, Oswald. Leo, mobilize my frat boys. First National Bank ought to be easy pickings. Don't forget about the cash boxes. They ought to be ripe. And the finest jewelry stores in town. Gentlemen, tonight we paint this town black. And then rob it blind. Back at the dorm room. I'm gonna do it. Do what, TJ? I'm gonna ask Ronnie out. I mean, if she'd just give me a shot, she'd see that I was way cooler than Lex. Go for it. What do you got to lose? <laughs> My head. I mean, if Lex sends one of his goons after me. Looks like we're experiencing technical difficulties here at radio station WEIL. Some kind of power surge. We've got turntable. There's trouble with electric plant, I bet. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't want you fainting again. Come on, come on. I'll cover for you, buddy. Clark, sensing a problem bigger than TJ's camera, tears open his shirt and flies out the window. At the plant, the students helping Lex are firing their beam at the building, trying to knock out all the power in the city. Superboy intercepts a power line that seems to be carrying a much larger and more dangerous electrical charge than normal. And as TJ snaps photos, Superboy absorbs the extra energy while Lex's unnoticed helpers leave the area. Later, TJ runs alongside Ronnie. Ronnie! Hey! Hey, Ronnie! Oh, hi, TJ. Hey, how's Clark? Gosh, it was a nasty fall he had the other day, huh? Well, no, he's okay. He's always doing things like that. Yeah? Well, he's taking better care of himself. Lon and I, we look out for him. Yeah? Listen, Ronnie, I was thinking maybe, um, you and I, we can go out sometime, you know? Maybe pizza and a movie? <laughs> pizza and a movie? Oh, I mean, that sounds nice, but I can't. I mean, I don't think Lex would understand that. Uh, no offense here, Ronnie, but Lex Luthor isn't exactly Mr. Popularity here at Schuster. Well, see, nobody knows Lex like I do. He's, he's kind, considerate, he's generous. Arrogant, obnoxious. No, no, that's just a defense, TJ. To hide how shy he really is. Why, Veronica, that is the nicest thing anyone has ever said of me. And speaking of generous... For me? Alex, you shouldn't have. Oh, it's beautiful. Of course, it's not an actual space stone. It's just a remarkable simulation. Oh. I had it made just for you. Oh, Lex, how can I ever thank you? I'll think of something, my dear. I just got stepped on by Tyrannosaurus Lex. Further proof of those affections comes later at dinner when, in his dorm room, Lex prepares a version of chicken flambe he came up with, just to serve to Veronica. Veronica, my darling, your necklace looks particularly beautiful by candlelight. Oh, my necklace. Well, what about me? I was coming to that, but first... Chicken flambe a la Luthor. Oh, oh, my Lex. You keep outdoing yourself. Nothing but the finest for you, my dear. <laughs> Have I told you the story of how I came upon this tantalizing recipe? What? You know I'm busy. Okay, make it fast. The police? Now, how could they find the machine? I specifically told those idiots to lose it. Damn it! This is serious. Lex, what, what's wrong? Blithering idiots! Who? I, I, I don't want to talk about it. But who are you so mad Shut at? Shut up, Veronica. Hey, Lex! I said I don't want to talk about it! Veronica, offended by Lex yelling at her, yells back and Lex overturns the table in anger. The chicken flambe quickly catches the room on fire, leaving Lex and Veronica trapped. Within seconds, Clark senses the fire and zooms to the rescue. 
When he arrives, however, at Superboy, Veronica's necklace affects him, and he collapses. Though Superboy opened the path for their escape, Veronica says they need to help the fallen hero. But Lex leaves her saying, you help him, I'm out of here. Outside, Lex runs into Leo and pleads with him to go back inside to save the rock. Leo finally agrees and heads inside. Once there, Leo discovers both Superboy and Veronica unconscious on the dorm room floor. Leo lifts Veronica and carries her outside. I got the girl, Lex. You didn't tell me Superboy was in there, too. Forget them. Where's my necklace? Oh, you left me up there to die, and you are worried about a stupid necklace? You are worse than scum, Lex. You are murderous scum. A boyhood ambition of mine. I always was an overachiever. <laughs> I never want to see you again, Lex Luthor. <laughs> Not just yet, my pretty. What? Oh, you want this piece of junk, huh? Huh? Just take it. No! 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 I'm Lex Luthor! This can't happen to Lex Luthor! Well, at least I'm rid of Superboy forever. Looking for something, Lex? No, 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 I... <laughs> I know you're trying to impress Veronica, but don't you think this is going a little too far? <laughs> <laughs> no, I like a man with style. Oh, did you hear that, Lex? <laughs> hey, how about one more, and this time say cheese. Ah, you're looking good, Lex. The professor gives Superboy a lead box containing every last piece of the rock. I'm sure the lead shielding will protect you. I still wish I knew where they came from. Well, we may never know. And though they may be of value to mankind, you say the risk to you is too great. Something tells me you will be an important force to mankind in the future. More important than any stones. Thank you, Professor. I know just the way of getting rid of these forever. That was every last piece of it. So this episode, like I mentioned before, written by Andy Helfer and Mike Carlin. So, you know, when you see those two names, you're going to get some comic book heavy concepts right off the bat. Now, this episode plays a huge homage to Superman the movie. As for those of you who remember Superman the movie, the kryptonite crashed in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And the same here, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. That being said, the two boys in... The beginning of this episode, they find the kryptonite. Yeah, they don't look Ethiopian to, to me. Very few uh, white or Arabic kids in Ethiopia. Just saying. If you're going to do it, do it right. But the, the rock does grow, glow green on their faces. In the immortal words of Gus Gorman, that's kryptonite. So but from there, we go straight to, almost too quickly if you ask me, we go straight to uh, Schuster University and the lecture hall. Lex is uh, making up, making it with the uh, chick of the week, and uh, Clark is seizing TJ, who has uh, a little bit of a crush on the uh, chick of the week. Her name is uh, Ronnie, short for Veronica. So the uh, professor comes out, and he has a meteor with him from Addis Ababa, and as soon as the meteor comes out, down goes Clark. Well, actually, he doesn't really go down right away. He makes a little bit of a show of standing up, being confused, not feeling well, before he kind of hits the deck to the right of the uh, auditorium seats. No one is quite sure what to make of this, but I like the touch from Lana pointing out that Clark has avoided doctors since he was a kid. Well, you know, a lot of kids don't like going to the doctor. Hell, my kids don't. 
there was a time when as soon as uh, you mentioned the word doctor around Haley, she'd start crying because, you know, she associates doctor with getting a shot. Well, Clark didn't want to go to the doctor for other reasons. So Leo talks too much, but Lex knows that something's up as he uh, feels that the uh, rock has some great power. I'm not sure why he feels this, but he seems to suspect that something's up. But at least with relation to Clark, there's no reason for him to uh, suspect anything, and he doesn't. But I'm not sure what gives it away to, to Lex that this rock is so powerful. Because later on, he someone says, asks somebody has or something, and he calls it power. So uh, Lex's date, uh, Ronnie, is showing some sympathy toward Clark as uh, he's recovering while they leave. I, like I said, when I watched this episode to begin with, I wasn't quite sure what Lex was, was gleaning from all this, but he's feeling lucky. And uh, he has a collection of nerds that uh, build machines for him. A lot of people collect things. Bottle caps, baseball cards, comic books. Lex Luthor collects nerds that build him stuff. And so with comical music playing in the background, it almost seems like, uh, you know, like that oboe you hear on Star Trek. Like that kind of thing. And you have these two nerds setting up the machine. And Lex has to put the kryptonite in it. And, uh... Leo is doing what he normally does. Leo is confused, but fortunately this time he's confused with his clothes on and he's not wearing that, that zebra prince speedo that uh, horrified me the last time we saw Leo. So a green beam emerges from the machine, obviously green powered by the kryptonite, and it overpowers the speakers of Alexa's dorm room. And it's hilarious watching uh, Nerds 1 and Nerd 2 freak out about breaking Luther's speakers, but you know, Lex is okay with it. It's it showed uh, by rate increasing the volume of the speakers that it causes an increase in power. And it gives Lex an idea. And uh, by the way, this show is uh, laying the, on the stereotypes pretty thick here. As these guys are the ter- stereotypical virgin nerds. Anything uh, they want to do, they're trying to do it so they can get girls. Which, you can tell by looking at these guys, uh, no girl has come within 100 miles of these two idiots. So now we're having uh, power outages on campus and uh, Superboy is uh, on the job. And uh, Lex is using the machine on the power station while Nerd 1 and Nerd 2 are thinking about how they're going to get laid tonight. Spoiler warning, they don't. So, Superboy finds where they're overloading the power station and he grabs the wire. I think it's they call it the trunk line or something like that, but most of the current is flowing through this line. And it's much more powerful than Superboy probably either expects it to be or it is too powerful for him as it's he's struggling with this. This charge is so great that he's, well, he's not falling to his knees, but it's an effort. TJ shows up with his camera, tells him to hold that pose while the current is running through not only the wire, but Superboy's body as well. It definitely had enough current to make Superboy's teeth chatter, and I'm sure uh, Superboy didn't find TJ's instructions funny in the slightest bit. So eventually the charge kind of knocks uh, TJ to the ground, and Superboy grounds the wire, and Lex is pissed that Superboy showed up and ruined his heist. But he wants to rock, and I guess the nerds won't be getting late tonight. So TJ tries to put the move on Lex's girlfriend the next day, and uh, he responds by trying to buy his girlfriend's affection, which he does very successfully, by the way, with a gemstone pendant. Yeah, he's clearly shown off for the TJ while he's hiding the kryptonite around the girlfriend's neck. In about 12 or so years from this point, Lana Lang will wear a kryptonite pendant almost regularly, the way she did in the first season of Smallville. So Lex and Veronica are having dinner with... Uh, Ronnie all dressed up and Lex is in his uh, Hugh Hefner uh, smoking jacket. And uh, Lex has cooked a fancy meal for her. He cooked uh, chicken and flambe and he's waving that thing around like you wouldn't believe. And Veronica just comes off as extremely superficial. She cares about things. She's enamored with her necklace. Just all about the uh, the objects. Let's just say that. And then Lex gets some bad news because apparently the nerds didn't get rid of the machine. And Lex just turns here. He just... Goes bananas, he screams at Ronnie, yells at her. He kicks over the chicken flambe, which was not incredibly intelligent because that was open over an open flame, and now TJ is burning his dorm room down, or his his suite. I don't exactly know what it is. I guess if it has a chicken from which to cook chicken flambe, it's pretty much like a small apartment. So uh, as Clark leaves, because he's going to go put the fire out and turn into Superboy, we have a creepy professor putting the moves on him, which just made me want to shudder. So, of course, uh, when TJ is showering when the alarm goes off and he grabs his camera but uh, neglects to uh, pick up pants as well, or any type of clothing for that matter. So, meanwhile, Lex's suite is on fire and Superboy is about to act when Veronica's pendant knocks him out, which I'm not 100% sure Lex notices. I mean, 
Lex did say to Veronica that it wasn't a space stone, but judging by the way Superboy reacted to it, yeah, it's a space stone, as, tell, as told by the greenish hue. And, of course, at this point, Lex does not have enough information to compare Clark and Superboy's reactions to the rock. Because, I mean, Clark was really far away, too, when he, when he used to come to the rock. But I'm not sure he's even thinking about its effect on Superboy. It could be, a, I guess it could be any one of a million things weakening him at the moment. At least Lex. So once they get out, Lex sends Leo back into the apartment after the kryptonite. But Leo kind of gives a half-hearted refusal. He's probably afraid of what Lex would do to him if he were to refuse. And back he goes into the burning room. He goes in, grabs Veronica kind of over his shoulder, and he brings back her back out to Lex. Who wants his kryptonite back? So with her, with her and her rock gone, Superboy comes to, and uh, that's when he makes the connection to the rock, and uh, which is shown by some quick flashes of uh, the necklace around of Ronnie's neck. So now he knows that the necklace is causing him all kinds of trouble, and that he succumbed earlier in the episode to the effect of this stone when the professor uncovered it. So it's nice to see Superboy putting uh, two and two together. And now when Leo drags her out, Lex asks about the necklace, and Veronica pretty much gets pissed and basically dumps him right in the courtyard. You know, but Lex doesn't really care about Ronnie. All he cares about is his necklace, which, in a moment of spunk, Ronnie takes the necklace and flings it right into the sewer, where there's still some leftover water current from the uh, from the firefighters. <laughs> and it's hysterical watching Lex just kind of dive after it, miss it, and just kind of end up all full of mud on the ground. Very undignified, Lex. So we do get a poetic moment here where Luther said at least he threw it a Superboy who comes out of the uh, building and just kind of stands there looking smug. And then TJ gets to look all smug in all of his toweled glory taking pictures of Lex. Lana gives him crap about being uh, outside and naked and uh, apparently uh, Veronica likes it. Probably because he's humiliating Lex, not because uh, TJ is a finely sculpted specimen. Case in point, he's not. Everyone teases Lex's misfortune and Lex just kind of lays on the ground and kind of growls until... Presumably, everyone goes away. And then this episode ends with uh, the Professor giving Superboy the kryptonite because it's proven a danger to him. This episode establishes that Superboy doesn't know where the rock came from or where he came from, for that matter. And I'm going to have to pay close attention to, because we're going to see kryptonite again throughout the course of the show, I'm going to pay attention to see whether it's actually called kryptonite in the show because Clark, I don't think, will find out he's from another world until the series finale at the end of season four. And I'm not sure... The word Krypton is ever mentioned in that episode, so I guess we'll see. That's definitely something I'll keep an eye out as we march through the series. So Superboy takes the rock and the lead case and uh, shot basically shot puts it up into space. Then we got a very random shot of an Eastern airplane, Airlines plane just flying by because I guess the bills need to get paid. A very random place for product placement. Couldn't they have Superboy like fly by a plane or something? So and then as Superboy is throwing it, we get... The awards of the professor kind of ringing in Superboy's ears that that's the very last piece of it, which we know it isn't. And even Superboy should know that it's not because he knew of the piece around Ronnie's neck. Maybe he should go back and investigate what happened to that. You would think maybe she'd tell him that she flung it. But he did destroy most of it, so there is that. Oh, well, that wasn't bad. I really don't care for this version of Lex Luthor. It's not that he isn't smarmy enough, just too silly for my taste. And a lot of the acting in this episode, in this series so far is very silly. It will get better later on, so just I appreciate you sticking with me until we get to that part. Funny note, the episode is called Kryptonite Kills, but the word Kryptonite is never mentioned. And I mentioned before, I'll keep a lookout for that throughout the show. Now, next time, we're going to see more of Mike Carlin and Andy Helfer as they follow up on their previous episode with the alien. And they come back for Revenge of the Alien, parts 1 and 2. In the meantime, if you want to leave feedback, you can do so at manascreen at gmail.com. If you want to leave a message over in the Facebook group, just put Manascreen Podcast in your search feed and the show should come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at Manascreencast. Until next time, folks, we're all on the same team. Good night. The Manascreen Podcast is produced by Mike Zumo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zumo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. Email to this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.